Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Philippine X and Wellness. We will be approaching Season 3, Episode 11, interviewing Professor Janet Stickman about healing racial battle fatigue. What is racial battle fatigue, racism-related stress, and how can her program, Center Joy Power, be an incredible tool to help you through racism-related stress, colorism, and even microaggressions experienced by our community. We hope that you enjoy this episode. Maayong Adla, welcome back to Season 3 of Philippine X in Wellness. I am your host, Cheryl Sampson Ramirez. Following our last episode on self-care astrology with Marsha Pacificar, we will be talking with wellness consultant, professor of ethnic studies at Napa Valley College and author Janet Stickman. As mentioned in previous episodes, all views discussed are for informational and educational purposes only is not meant to be medical advice. Always consult with your healthcare practitioner for your particular condition, especially before starting any exercise or new health program. For this episode, I'd like to welcome Professor Janet Stickman. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Janet Stickman. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Pleasure being here. Thank you for having me. We're grateful to have you here as well. We typically like to open our episodes asking where both sides of your family are from and where are you currently streaming from? Okay, so I identify as Black Apina. I'm a biracial woman of African-American and Filipino-American heritage. And uh, my mom is Filipino and she's from the Barangay of Labangon in Cebu. And my dad is African-American. He's from Shreveport, Louisiana. I'm currently streaming from Richmond, California, the unceded territory of the Ohlone and Miwok people. Awesome. Shout out to all the Visayans out there and also to all the biracial folks in our community representing dual identity and multiple identities. So we're happy to have you all, you know, listening in, watching, or just being on our podcast. So... The title of our episode is uh, Healing Racial Battle Fatigue. This episode was aired purposefully in February during Black History Month because, in my opinion, Black or African Americans were at the forefront of addressing racism within this country, speaking to the U.S. or Turtle Island, depending on who you ask. And it really opened up many doors for other ethnic groups, including our Philippine ex or Filipino community. What? What exactly, Janet, is racial battle fatigue and what does racism-related stress look like? Okay, so uh, racial battle fatigue is a term that was coined by Dr. William A. Smith out of the University of Utah, and it's a term used to describe the physiological, behavioral, and psychological strain that's experienced by people of color as we fight against and deal with racism. Um, in a talk that Dr. Smith had given uh, last year, he also described it as a systemic racism-related repetitive stress injury. And I thought that was a really nice and concise way of really capturing what we're looking at here. Um, essentially, when we're looking at 
racial battle fatigue, it is a combination of these intertwined stress responses, again, physiological, psychological, and behavioral. Um, if we looked at just a couple of examples of uh, what those stress responses look like, uh, say, for example, we're looking at the physiological uh, stress responses, it would be anything from chest pain to um, sleep disturbances to teeth grinding to gastrointestinal problems. Uh, then when we look at behavioral examples, uh, they would be withdrawing from others, being quick to get angry, and then mm -hmm. psychological, um, anywhere from anxiety, worry, fear, and being hypervigilant. And I think one of the interesting things about uh, racial battle fatigue is that you know, despite that term fatigue, oftentimes when people hear that term, they think, oh, it's just exhaustion, it's just being tired. And it's far more than that. It is, you know, the ways in which um, we experience uh, racism related stress and the kind of toll it takes on our, uh, on our physical and our mental wellness. Thank you for defining that. And I'm glad that you touched on the different ways that it manifests in our bodies because I know, especially for many communities of color, they may not have outlets or ways to really express the stress they're feeling. Talk therapy is not really a popular thing amongst many uh, communities of color for various reasons, right? Distrust with institutional systems historically, right? And so... When we see these things manifesting, like, for example, in chest pain or um, physi physiologically in our bodies, it's also the result of an internalization of, right, compounded and comple complex um, stress that many of our communities experience. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And oftentimes, you know, we may have a habit of just ignoring some of these signs. We think, oh, okay, my, my chest hurts. I'm just going to rest a little bit. Let me just sit down. Or we may be so used to some of these physical indicators that we just continue to go about our business and not really give it a second thought. Um, or we may end up thinking, oh, okay, yeah, it's due to stress, but we don't realize, well, um, you know, there are all these everyday stressors and then there's the the stress that you know we experience due to you know racial microaggressions and macroaggressions, and um, we don't realize that it is slowly kind of chiseling away at our health. Yes. So when you talk about like micro or macroaggressions, how, how would you define that? You know, for those of our community that maybe are trying to discern whether they're experiencing these things. Yeah, that's I, I think that's a really important question. Thank you, Cheryl. Uh, the when looking at microaggressions, these are the things that are said or done, whether they're intentional or unintentional, verbal, nonverbal, and they ultimately communicate this uh, negative message that targets people based on the marginalized group that they might be from. And there can be all types of microaggressions, whether they are racial. Uh, gender, sexuality, class-based, um, and in our case, looking at you know racial microaggressions. Perhaps some examples might be uh, 
when someone says, oh, you know, you're, you're smart for being black or, you know, you, you don't get mad all the time like other black people or, oh, I'm surprised you speak good English for being Asian, you know, all these sorts of things. And what's, what's interesting is that oftentimes the person who is saying or in, engaging in the use of that microaggression there's a part of them that thinks that they're paying the person a compliment when really there's this underlying negative message that's being um, communicated. And uh, one of the things that I uh, share with my students when talking about microaggressions is that it oftentimes leaves the person feeling almost as though they don't know whether they've been kicked or kissed. And so sometimes there's this ambivalence about, well, how do I react? That maybe they were just trying to be nice and then blah, blah, blah. You know, they were a little bit awkward about it. Should I say something? Should I not say something? And all of that back and forth requires energy. And the fact that you were feeling some kind of way about it really speaks volumes to how hurtful and harmful that statement or that action was. See, yeah. And for many of our oppressed or colonized communities, just being able to challenge authority can be really difficult for various reasons, whether historically, you know, they've been silenced in various ways, or um, maybe even within their culture, they were taught not to speak against authority. We're seeing the manifestations of this through racial battle fatigue. So I'm really um, glad and feeling really grateful and thankful to have you on this podcast to just really talk about that and how it's really manifesting um, in what we see maybe through our own health and, and wellness. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. So, Janet, I want to know more about your origin story. So, what led you to this work? Was there a particular event or series of events that led up to your decision in wanting to focus on healing racial battle fatigue? Yes, I uh, basically all of this work uh, that I do around healing racial battle fatigue um, traces its origins to my own personal experience of uh, dealing with racial battle fatigue before I even realized what it was called. Um, I, for many years, I was um, coming up against, you know, resistance when it came to developing ethnic studies curriculum. I was dealing with oppressive administrators. Um, I was also, um, you know, as a parent, defending my child against some of the racial and gender microaggressions uh, she was experiencing in school. And so um, all of this really built up and uh, around... Let's see, I think it was around 2016, um, I was experiencing chest pains and um, I went to the uh, emergency room. They took all these tests um, and luckily all the tests came out normal. And, you know, I talked to the doctor. He was happy to give me those results. But I was confused because I knew the pain in my chest was real. I knew the heart palpitations, all of that was real. And, you know, I turned to the doctor, I said, well, you know, I'm happy that the results came out normal, but what do you attribute the chest pain to? And he looked at me and he said, so how's work? And I just burst into tears. I burst mm-hmm. into tears and, and right then and there I realized, okay, there's my answer. 
And um, after that conversation with that doctor in the ER, I was uh, referred to a new primary care doctor. And it was then that I was able to really hash out some of the things that I was experiencing. And I was very fortunate to have a doctor who asked me, um, so, so what do you do for fun? Um, and I, I did not know how to answer that question. I was just, I was sitting there thinking, well, uh, <laughs> I, I, I saw myself for many years. I saw myself as a fun person. I'm a fun person. I do fun things. And yet when posed with the question, I didn't know how to answer. I did not know how to answer it. And that was another indication that I had really neglected, um, just something as simple as doing fun things, um, integrating fun things into my life. And for that week, in addition to making sure he connected me with a therapist and made sure I had all these other resources available to me, he gave me uh, homework. He said, this week, I want you to do something fun. And that was the start of my healing process. Um, and he, though he didn't use this term, I grew to understand fun and joy as something that I could integrate into my daily life as if it were a vitamin, um, thinking of joy as a daily vitamin. Um, I think up until that up until that point, I was always thinking of play and fun and joy being all these things that I would have to forego um, mm -hmm. until I got all the work done. Once all the work is done, okay, then I'll do something fun. Then I'll treat myself. But I mean, the, the thing is, you know, as, as a professor and really in <laughs> you, I think this applies to a number of uh, fields across the board, the work is never done. There's yeah. always work. And mm. I think I lost sight of that. And in an effort to get everything done and be responsible and be reliable in the eyes of my colleagues and all these sorts of things, I lost sight of what it meant to have fun. And I was so grateful to that, that doctor that reminded me and set me on this path of um, centralizing fun in my life that it needed to be uh, uh, a path toward my my wellness and needed to be at the center of my my health. Yeah, you bring up so many interesting topics that come to the forefront in in your response. I mean, I'm thinking about definitely my parents as you speak, and also just myself and many other people that I know, where work is centered and joy and and fun are placed, you know, as secondary just because, you know, especially if you're um, growing up in um, a working class family or maybe like an um, immigrant family or a uh, family of color, work is the priority, right? It's, it's a way to rise out of maybe your economic situation that you might be experiencing and even um, generationally, um, especially thinking about maybe my parents' generation who grew up grew up mainly in like the the fifties or the sixties, right? Um, they they were older. They 
had to prioritize work. There was, you know, there was no um, such thing as even thinking outside of that box, right? And a lot of times, culturally, we also think about putting others first before ourselves. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. Yeah, work work is a necessity. Um, and, you know, to to put ourselves first or to put our own needs or to put something um put fun at the top of our list of priorities uh is is something i know that my my parents you know never never explicitly you know entertained it was always they were definitely working there was fun woven in um but you know i i really i think what was so clear to me is that um work had to be done because we needed to survive. Um, when I look at, you know, other relatives and then, you know, friends of mine, students of mine, students of color in particular, indeed, the idea of um, putting oneself at the top of our list of priorities is often at times viewed as selfish. And um, so the term self-care ends up being a very new term for, for many, many of us because it's, dis- it's almost impossible to make a distinction between self-care and self-centeredness. Mm-hmm. And um, so one of the things that I like to do with my students and my clients as well is, you know, understand how self-care and you know, I include fun, enjoy being part of that self care and our path toward wellness. That it's an act of self compassion, and um, if we want to uh, be generous with our time, generous with our attention when it comes to nurturing others, we have to fill our own well. You know, we have to um, extend that compassion that we extend to all to everyone else we have to extend that compassion toward ourselves yeah and it's interesting too that when we move towards acts of self-care or different practices sometimes initially there's a sense of guilt that comes from it where we maybe you know we don't feel that we're deserving of that right that's true and then even so it's these patterns that we are experiencing are usually habits that are passed down from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. So we become, you know, used to the habits that we saw in our parents. And not only are we inheriting these habits, but we're also inheriting their trauma, mm-hmm. right? There's that that concept of intergenerational trauma and also the term of epigenetics, right? How things get passed down genetically. And sometimes we may be experiencing this, these physiological responses or these um, biological, you know, psychological responses and not necessarily know where they're rooted. Yes, yeah, that is, um, it's so true. I think that um, just uh Backing up to your uh, first point about guilt, um, this is something that I encounter 
uh, day in and day out, whether it's with my um, students at the uh, college level or with my clients um, in various professions, that um, even though there is this desire to reconnect with joy and do fun things and 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 really savor those uh, good things that enter one's life, at the same time there is this initial resistance. Um, mm -hmm. There is that guilt, you know, is, is it okay for me to have fun when so many other people are going hungry or are going without or experiencing some kind of scarcity or deprivation? Is it, is it okay for me to have fun and, and enjoy and savor this good thing? Uh, because I feel like something bad is about to happen. And, mm -hmm. and I, I really, um, I have learned so much, especially from uh, the work of uh, uh, Mario, Dr. Mario Martinez. He is the author of The Mind-Body Code, and he talks about abundance and what it means to raise your ceilings of abundance. And one of the things that I find interesting is as he defines in his definition of abundance, this is something that I integrate in, in my program. Mm -hmm. It talks about abundance being the amount of health, wealth, and love that you need to, you require in order to lead a joyful life. And when one lives a life of deprivation or scarcity in any of those areas, that over time they get used to that scarcity and get used to that deprivation to the point where when something good does enter their their life uh, it is experienced with a stress response and there's either guilt or there's fear or there's some kind of you know stress that's felt somewhere throughout the body and um, it becomes so necessary I've had to learn this in my own personal life and this is something that I've shared with others as well Mm -hmm. how important it is to breathe in to those good things that enter our lives to really um, sit with those things um, and recognize where the stress uh, where we're holding the stress in our bodies um, so that we can get to a point where we, where we release it um, so we don't end up uh, engaging in self-sabotage when it comes to the good things that enter our lives. We don't end up pushing that good thing out just because it's foreign, just because it's not familiar. So yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm also kind of thinking about how the costs of some wellness activities can really intimidate. Um, you know, especially like communities of color that are just used to maybe seeking self-care practices that can sometimes be self-destructive or maladaptive, right? So, like, we've had episodes on, like, substance use disorder, or, you know, for for example, where maybe someone might equate substances um, or substance abuse, or which can lead to substance abuse in some cases, um, as a way to relieve their stress and maybe see something, for example, like, as yoga, as not something that is for me because that's for maybe someone that is white or has uh, money or can afford to do that. So, yeah. you know, I'm 
I'm going to try to seek something that is more familiar and not as expensive, right? Yes. Oh, yeah, I see that. I see that as well. Um, time and time again, you know, if if I offer as a solution um, or as a as a uh, as an option, you know, physical exercise, signing up, signing up in a, a, you know for a gym membership or yoga membership or what have you, a number of times I would hear, oh, you know, that's that's not for me. That's that's for white folks. That's what white folks do. Um, I'm going to do this over here, you know, or I'm going to. You know, I'm, I, I smoke, you know, I smoke to, to um, relieve stress um, and, it, and it works for me. And <laughs> I, whenever I do exercises with particularly um, some of my college students and do some brainstorming around what are some uh, ways in which we can take care of ourselves or what are some healthy rewards we can give to ourselves when, let's say, we, we finish uh, working toward, you know, a particular step in completing a project, you know, what are some healthy rewards? I have to be conscious about integrating the word uh, healthy, because if I don't, um, I'll get smoking, I'll get, okay, I'm I'm just going to get wasted on the weekend and I'll feel better after that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't think you know, individuals that may respond in that way, they may not realize, fully realize um, the long-term uh, effects that uh, they aren't beneficial. Though they may have heard, oh yeah, drugs are not good for me, it's not good for me to drink, but it, they haven't really um, internalized what kind of real lived impact that will have on their mental and physical health. Right. Or maybe shopping makes them feel better, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to change gears a little bit and just kind of come back to um, talking about, Janet, how do you feel your biracial identity influences your work? Or how do you feel like it plays a role in what you do? Okay, let's see. Um, I'll maybe talk a little bit first about um, my journey and understanding my biracial identity, and then uh, I'll move into um, how it's found its way in my work. How does that sound? That sounds great. Uh, so I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm Black and Filipino, uh, mom from um, Cebu, uh, dad from Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, I grew up being amongst... Mm, I, I grew up in Lancaster, California. I really did not know of anyone else at school that was um, Black and Filipino. Um, I know that my mom had a dear friend who was also um, was also Cebuano, uh, was also married to a man who was African American, and also had a biracial child. Um, and so we grew up. Um, we were just a few years apart, but we grew up as playmates. And it was I was glad that we had each other um, growing up because otherwise I would have thought I was the only, you know, only black Apina kid on the face of the earth had it not been for this other, you know, this basically uh, we we now think of each other as siblings. Um, but I think that was the beginning of me really having my identity affirmed when I didn't really completely know it, I wasn't completely aware of it. 
Um, mm-hmm. I remember having a lot of struggles around um, what it meant to be both and, um, you know, feeling at times not feeling, quote, black enough, at times not feeling Filipino enough. Um, mm-hmm. and so there were all these uh, ideas in, that I was coming up against when it came to authenticity and what exactly that meant. Um, and wanting to be whole and, and over, you know, a certain, certain number of years, I became really tired of identifying as half black and half Filipino because I felt fragmented and I was really longing for, uh, a chance to feel whole. Um, Mm. and eventually I found myself after, you know, learning more and more about my black side, learning more and more about my Filipino side, I found myself identifying as a hundred percent Filipino, a hundred percent, um, black and not identifying as these fractions. Um, and you know, later on around 2007, I, uh, identified as Black Abina. Uh, this was inspired by um, two scholars uh, that I, whose work I uh, learned quite a bit from um, at a conference. I think it was the Loving Conference in 2007 in Chicago. Um, Rudy Guevara, uh, who had uh, coined the term, at least in literature, uh, Mexipino, and then mm. Rebecca Romo, uh, the term Blacksican. And it was nice to hear and read these terms and know that there was no laughter surrounding the terms, that these terms were meant to be serious. They were meant to really uh, signify an experience of biraciality that was distinct. Um, And it was around that time that I realized, you know what, there is no shame in identifying uh, as Black Apina using a blended term. I think up until that time, I was very hesitant because I never wanted to be, I never wanted to be seen as a diluted version or a counterfeit version of, you know, someone who was Black or a counterfeit or diluted version of someone who was Filipino or Filipino-American. And that was the idea that I had if I would use, if I would consider using a blended term. But there was something about um, their work. And, and not to mention also uh, Susan Lexander, uh, she had done some work around uh, something called psychosynthesis, really kind of integrating one's um, various subpersonalities into this integrating eye and really holding all of those things in tension and in joy. And uh, I learned to love both sides and be and be at home with both sides and also be at home in the in-between space and see that in-between space as sacred and beautiful um, and a place out of which creative uh, solutions come because I'm living at the intersection. And had I not been born in this intersection of identities, I wouldn't be trying to make sense of some of the different things that, that I encounter in life. And so fast forward to now and this work, um, I'm very grateful for, uh, my, 
uh, biracial experience because it has helped inform uh, my ideas about wholeness, uh, my desire for wholeness, uh, and uh, nuance. I think there's a particular uh, attention that I give to to nuance and um, and again the beauty of liminality and and being in a an in between space that uh, perhaps otherwise may may be a little more uncomfortable. So, yeah, yes, and so um, based on what you do, this this has really. Um, influence the work that you're offering to others as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And how do you begin to also explain your work uh, to your family members? Do you find this to be an easy or a challenging process when they ask you um, what you're doing for a living? Um, sometimes, you know, I, I enjoy conversations with, with my family. I'm really close to cousins on my Filipino American side and my, my brother, um, and, and sisters and, and nieces and nephews. And, you know, if it comes up in conversation, then, you know, I'll share a little bit about it. Uh, I try not to get into too much detail, um, only because sometimes <laughs> it, it could become bo it could become boring. So I just don't get into too much detail unless there are some questions that are that are asked, some specific questions about, oh, you know, so what is racial battle fatigue? And oh, that sounds familiar. You know, does this mean, you know, fill in the blank? And so if I get some kind of indication that there's a, a, some curiosity about a specific term, then I'll go into more detail. Other than that, I'll just go into broad strokes. And to be honest, I'm fine with it. I, 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 I no one really, uh, I, I find that both sides of my family have really embraced me, um, as a woman, as a biracial woman, um, and as a professor, um, I think that, um, there, there was this, you know, uh, concern that, me being a professor would separate me from the family. I never wanted my family to ever think that I thought of myself as better than or more mm -hmm. intelligent than uh, mm -hmm. my family members uh, because of my formal education, because, you know, being a professor and whatnot. So I, it's, it's not so much that I withhold information about my profession, but it's something that I, I, I want to make sure that as I talk about my work, I also really, really listen to the wisdom that is um, in my family um, and the wisdom that they have gained through their variety of, of experiences, whether it be from the workplace or just life. And so, um, yeah, does that does that answer your question? Yes, I, I was just wondering, like, if if it's easy, basically, for your family to understand what you do, or how you, how do you navigate around that? Especially maybe because there might be varying viewpoints towards race, right? Or mm -hmm. even understanding that, depending on different family members. I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes people sure. in the same family don't don't agree with viewpoints or perspectives on that. True. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I. <laughs> I mean, luckily, for the most part, uh, when it comes to race, 
on both sides of my family, we are uh, we have similar politics. And so I mm -hmm. know have uh, there isn't as much resistance um, to the things that uh, the work that I do. On the other hand, you know, if I were to get into it deeper, perhaps, you know, some of the disagreements could surface. To be honest, it 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 hasn't been that important to me to yeah. get into to more detail than what I've already shared with them. All right, we're going to take a pause. Thank you all for joining us for our 11th episode of season three. I'm talking with wellness practitioner, professor, and author Janet Stickman. Feel free to take a quick stretch, refill your water or tea. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back to Philippine X in Wellness. You were just listening to the Hear It From You instrumental by Freddie Joachim, released in 2018 off of his In With Time album through Mellow Orange. Freddie Joachim is a California native music producer, DJ, avid listener, and collector of music. You can find his music on all digital platforms, and we'd like to thank Freddie for consent to use his track in this episode. Shout out to our Philippine X artists and musicians out there laying down the tracks. Returning from our break, I'm talking with Professor Janet Stickman about healing racial battle fatigue. Now, Janet, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on our podcast is because of colorism and microaggression that I... I have personally often experienced and witnessed within our Filipino community and also within my own family, right? So colorism, as we know, you know, text, 
Facebook and, and microaggressions um, within our community are a direct result not only of colonialism and imperialism within the Philippines, but also racism experienced throughout our diaspora glo globally as a result of this. And when I was really casting this episode and, and thinking about how it's affected my own experience of wellness, I thought back to some of the experiences that I've had growing up. I can think to one example in particular where as a child, I used to sit in front of the sliding door um, to that separated our house from our backyard. And I used to sit in front of it because it was a, a glass door that where the sun shined through. And I love to just like sunbathe literally as a child, just feeling the like warmth of the sun against my skin. And there was like one instance where I remember my mom, who was half Chinese, had asked me to, um, you know, stop sitting in front of the glass window because she didn't want me to get dark like my dad. And my dad um, presented as a, um, he is now past, but my dad presented as more of a brown skin, a Filipino man um, who had some Spanish in him. But I remember his response and reaction as he was reading the paper, he got, he stopped and he got offended by the remark that my mom said, you know, and, and I, you know, it stirred up this argument. And I remember asking her like what she meant by that. And she was like, well, look at your dad, you know, he's, he's like dark. He wasn't like that before. And, and I remember asking her like, well, why did she think that my dad was dark or right or brown? And she said, well, you know, I think it's from all the time that he spent working in the fields. And I just started to notice kind of like this status thing that she was trying to exert or these colonial behaviors, like, for example, um, remarking um, that um, um, she liked how fair my skin was or my, my aunts would make those comments, right? And how, how, you know, good it was that I was fair skinned or my mom would, you know, pinch my nose and, and just kind of say she's she's fortunate that I inherited my dad's Spanish kind of looking nose because it wasn't as flat as hers, right? There was like this self-hatred that came from being like like darker skin or having a flatter nose. And, um, you know, I remember there was also one instance where I was at a family party with my parents. And um, I also have family members or family friends that have part Spanish in them, right? Or are half Spanish. And my husband, who was my partner at the time, my boyfriend at the time, came over with me. He is Ilocano and Bantagueño, so he has darker skin. And at the time, he was wearing his hair in dreadlocks. And I remember um, an aunt saying just out loud, no shame at all, um, you know, he had a wrap around his dreadlocks and she said, um, why is he, his hair like that? Is he a terrorist? And she tried to just crack this joke, which neither of us found funny. We found it like offensive, you know, but then I remember also just kind of seeing my mom looking really embarrassed 
by that comment, you know, and just resenting my, you know, my husband, my boyfriend at the time for having that appearance, you know, and um, it's just these are just many of the situations that I've encountered and just sometimes like being around family members or friends that would just make these racialized uh, jokes around, you know, black people like feeling that that's okay and not knowing how to respond. So I just wanted to name these instances just because these are just different experiences that I felt growing up not fully knowing how to advocate for people that I consider soul family or my loved ones, you know, um, because I've been taught you know, or raised not to challenge my parents or challenge their views or authorities. And um, within all of this, you know, I think it's really affected not only my personal wellness, but those around me, right? So I want to talk about, my question for you is, how can we talk about colorism and microaggressions and how these types of experiences or instances can contribute to racial battle fatigue and racism-related stress within our community? Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for that that question, Cheryl. And, and, and truly, thank you for sharing uh, your experience because that basically illustrates, you know, what colorism looks like, you know, when we... Um, look at how we have this kind of value we assign to blackness and whiteness, value that we assign to darkness and lightness and and the ways in which communities of color have uh, over time internalized white supremacy and um, this placing of uh, premium on white and light skin and assigning it the meaning of of good and clean and better and desirable, civilized, you name it, innocence, beautiful. And then when it comes to brown or uh, black or darker skin, we assign the meaning uh, to it as being bad or dirty and primitive, um, being ugly, undesirable, or just seeing the person as 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 suspect, um, uh, really associating them with with criminality or just thinking the worst of the person and um and you know like you mentioned you know we we certainly see this in in the filipino and filipino american community i've seen it in my my own family um growing up um and i think you know as far as my own experience i have had um some family members uh, on my Filipino side uh, really be, especially as a as a teenager, uh, express uh, either envy <laughs> for my dark skin, um, or uh, in comparison to theirs, or there was this uh, silent contempt for uh, my hair texture. And mm. um, equating my hair, let's say if they saw my hair in the tub, expressing a, a level of disgust and really explicitly, you know, associating it with 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 pubic hair, that kind of disgust. And so, um, you know, and I mentioned hair, uh, you know, in in conjunction with with colorism, because oftentimes, you know, hair texture bias 
um, or paired texturism, you know, goes hand in hand with colorism. Um, and it's something that is <laughs> at the very least deeply frustrating and most certainly um, a, a source that can contribute to uh, the conditions that create racial battle fatigue. Uh, I know the other day we were talking about, you know, just looking at this whole, you know, industry of skin whitening creams and soaps yeah. that we have. Um, and some of the examples that you had shared earlier uh, when it comes to uh, now being encouraged to stay in the, the sun too long. I've, I've heard uh, a number of my students say that or sometimes family members Oh, we don't want to be in the sun too long. We don't want to. We don't want to get dark. We don't want to get too dark. And my question was always, "Well, why not? <laughs> What's so wrong with that?" Or sometimes some of our elders being preoccupied with, um, if someone has uh, given birth, being very preoccupied with, you know, how dark or light the child is when they've come out of the womb, mm. um, and so. You know, these being just a couple of examples, um, I think other examples being the ways in which, especially, you know, in our families, we may see uh, those who are lighter skinned um, folks being favored more than the darker skinned members of the family, or if there are um, lighter skinned mixed race members of the family that they're favored over the darker skinned mixed race members. Um, in, in various ways, or again, sometimes assuming the worst out of the uh, darker skinned uh, members of the, of the family, whether it be suspecting ill intent or them being associated with criminality or lack of intelligence or what have you, that this is associated with their skin color. And so the bottom line is, you know, all these things that are said and done um, as it relates to colorism and, you know, I'll add um, hair texture bias or texturism, uh, is that it hurts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, that's, they, they uh, these are, you know, microaggressions, they hurt, they cause harm, and they create stress in the people who um, are targets of these things, uh, whether it be intentional or unintentional, it is the person who has to sit with the burden of hearing that thing or dealing with that thing that again, it's this accumulation of stress, accumulation of stress due to these various microaggressions that create the conditions for racial battle fatigue. And I think we really just have to, um, I think it is important for uh, us as a community to raise our awareness about these various microaggressions and, you know, um, whether it be, you know, within the Filipino American community or just looking at society at large. And if we're looking at those who are in the, you know, if we're looking at the matrix of oppression and any group that might be in that column of, of, of dominance, uh, the dominant group versus the targeted or marginalized group, that if anyone, you know, uh, finds themselves in that dominant group, depending on that system of oppression, there's a certain responsibility to really put some work into raising our unconscious biases to the level of consciousness 
so that they don't turn into microaggressions that could then ultimately cause harm to folks in that targeted group, Mm -hmm. in that target group, in that marginalized group. What can be done to bring that to an end so that the hurt stops? Um, And so I, I bring this up because, you know, when it comes to my work around racial battle fatigue, I've, you know, I specialize in, you know, creating healing spaces for people of color. Um, right. And I think like in the larger scheme of things, the work I do is only one part of the puzzle that another part of it involves, well, what needs to take place in one's environment? How do we change one's environment so that the the racism stops the cause <laughs> of the racial battle fatigue stops, yeah. or at least uh you know is 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 mitigated in some way so yeah i mean it sounds there's so many different things right that contribute to racial battle fatigue i mean and ultimately i'm i'm glad that you just named it for what it was it's hurtful and when we hear these messages generationally, it creates a sense of self-hatred that's really hard to cycle out of for, for many people, right? Because no matter what you look like, at some point you're starting to feel like this deficit of maybe you're not light enough. Maybe your nose isn't straight enough. Maybe your hair... Y- your hair doesn't look a certain way because of this idealized standard of beauty that was created by a certain colonizer, right? Or that is promoted more through media and through pop culture. And so we we often see, you know, folks in our community wanting to straighten their hair, wanting to get those Brazilian blowouts and so I'm just grateful that we actually had an, uh, a guest on another episode of ours, Sherry Young, who has also Black Latino kids. And one of the things that she talked about was really promoting um, an acceptance in folks being able to wear their hair curly, to wear their hair wavy, and own that as an extension of their beauty. So I think I having those episodes are just as important in working through you know, racialized related stress or even, um, you know, racial battle fatigue. Yeah. yeah. I absolutely love that. Now, I, I want to talk about your website, um, Janet, Center Joy Power. Um, so it's spelled PWR. Does the PWR stand for power or does it stand for something else? So, um, in Center Joy Power, yes, the PWR, it stands for a couple of things. When um, when we read Center Joy Power all together, I, the intent was to have people kind of come away with the sense that uh, when we center our joy, that is our power. So there's uh, a power in centering our joy. So that's one part of it. Uh, the second part of it is that, yes, PWR in and of itself stands for um, play to work ratio. And this is something that uh, is at the heart of my program where I encourage the participants to 
embrace a commitment to playing more than they work throughout the week. And so this play to work ratio being greater than one, meaning that ultimately, can we get to a place or what does it look like if we find ourselves playing more than we work throughout the rest of the, the day or the week or what have you? And that's where that joy is daily vitamin um, concept comes in as well. And so, yeah, I think that there... You know, given the work ethic, especially, you know, in the United States, there is a lot of value that is placed on how, uh, what exactly we learn about ourselves through our work, um, as if we cannot learn as much about ourselves through our leisure or through um, play. And that's one of the things that I really want to um bring back this idea of, well, you know, what if we spent more time in leisure? What would our lives look like? What would we find out about ourselves? Uh, what are some uh, ways in which we might find uh, liberation uh, from play and answers to certain things that work can't answer? <laughs> Solutions that, that work can't really um, provide. And one of the things that I've found, especially through the various things I've been involved with, is that um, play really allows the sense of curiosity and surrender and, and, and novelty to come through. And it's, you know, it, it's really um, something important that is a necessity, not just something um, that is, is, nice to do, but we don't really need it. Truly, it is important for us to um, remain healthy and well. Yeah, I think it's really powerful that based on your own experiences, your, uh, you know, physiological, uh, you know, condition and experiences that came from the stress that you're feeling at work, that you've developed this program, not only um just from as a response to what you were dealing with, but also to offer that as a tool for others. I'd like to ask you, what types of services and strategies are you offering through Center Joy uh, Power? Like, I I love the idea of this balance that's coming forth through the play to work ratio. So, through your program, what can one expect? So basically, um, Center Joy Power uh, Strategies for Healing Racial Battle Fatigue is an online experience uh, that consists of uh, six modules, six weekly modules. And throughout the six-week uh, program, we walk through ways in which we can first identify and define what is joy and what does that look like for us and feel like for us. Um, and then also name racial battle fatigue and, you know, and racism related stress and what does that look like for us and, and how can we arrive at a place where we can have uh, free ourselves from those things that are causing us so, so much pain and so much heaviness. And as we are walking through this process and ultimately 
you know, I'm equipping the participants with a self-care plan and a set of rituals to help remind themselves the, of the importance of reconnecting with joy um, on a regular basis, that there are some, there are various things that I pull from. So as far as the strategies, I pulled from what has worked in, in my own personal life, but most certainly pulled from um, the research that I've done um, in terms of uh, various disciplines, whether it be neuroscience or mindfulness or ethnic studies, um, psychoneuroimmunology or sports medicine, and really kind of bringing all these things together and uh, giving the participants a space to really uh, engage in a healing process, understanding that joy is not just something nice to feel and experience, but it is a central part of uh, one's uh, wellness, that we can't just simply carve out space for joy. We have to prioritize it if we want to be well and and move beyond healing. Totally agree. Um, I I know as you're speaking, I also think about this Instagram account that I follow called Nap Ministry. I'm not sure if you're familiar. Yeah. And for a lack of a better term, I, I think it's a revolutionary thing, right? To to really highlight and center as, as well as your work of centering what joy looks like. Because you, stuff like r- rest, is a revolutionary act right and and for some people like i'll say like for myself i love to nap (laughs) napping brings me joy (laughs) right and so that's one of the reasons why i follow nap um ministry and i think similarly what you're offering to many individuals is just revolutionary in itself to really think about and switch your mind frame to what is bringing you joy authentically. Maybe, you know, we, we've really maybe operated in paradigms where we have to really think about how much emphasis and energy we place in our work, even though, and how much that defines us. But through listening to you, you're also really bringing out how, not only does work have to define you, but what, how does your leisure time define you? How does your play and your joy also define you? And what can you discover within that process? Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And it's so very important. I think it's something that you know many of us don't really give a second thought to. Um, or, you know, we... You know, there may I've come across a number of clients that may be good at doing fun things, um, or you know, they're good at having integrating into their lifestyle structured exercise, uh, but sometimes there it may just be done to relieve stress. It's it's done for the sake of something else. It's something that one does to escape from work or to relax after work or to recharge in order to have energy to be better on the job. <laughs> and I'll speak yeah. my my own personal experience too. And, and one of the things that I found very freeing, especially 
you know, during the pandemic is that I, I found that I was engaging in the things that I love for the sake, for the sheer enjoyment of the activity itself. And it was an entirely different feel. I was like, oh, okay. And it's not that I stopped working. I was still working, but it no longer, work was never, was no longer center stage. I could yes. actually see the activity for what it was or see the 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 human beings that whose company I was enjoying, I could see it for what it was. It wasn't a stepping stone to help me be better on the job or to, right. you know, relieve stress after the job. So, yeah, I just wanted to add that. Yeah, no, I'm I'm internalizing what you're saying because it, it probably once you discover what other activities in your life can bring you joy or fulfillment, you'll find that that same joy and fulfillment will start to permeate yes. into your job, right? Yes. Yes. It will start to change your outlook on your your job. Yes. It it certainly does. And and if if I may add, um Yeah, please. Uh that was precisely the experience that I had um with parkour. Um yeah. and I I think it was maybe my second year, sometime in my second year of doing uh parkour, I found, you know, it's it's probably one of the hardest things I've ever tried to do. And, you know, and I'm by no means when I say I, I train in parkour right now, I'm recovering from an injury. And so I'm hoping to return in the next couple of months. But when I say I do parkour, I'm not like, you know, some of the more advanced people, especially like my coaches that are flipping off of things and on the top of roof roofs and just <laughs> flipping and flipping. I stay uh, close to the ground. I, I do, I do what I can within my own <laughs> within my own reach but nonetheless yeah. still has been a good challenge for me and I've, I've been able to challenge my my fear uh particularly my fear of heights um mm. and you know one of the things that I learned is that you know by uh jumping over different obstacles or engaging in a you know a step vault or a, you know um or a parkour role or whatever it may be is that you can't pretend, you know, you can't pretend to make it over an obstacle. You can't pretend to do a move uh, without sufficient practice or, you know, progressions to um, that move. And and if you do attempt to pretend, you're going to hurt yourself or you're going to hurt someone else. And I, I think learning those lessons within the context of parkour very much spilled over in into my my work life and I, I found it so very healing um i think something else that i found really healing and, and surprising um is that you know in in that particular gym you know for the most part it was you know young men um that were training during the uh during the 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 open uh uh practice session and you know i was one of the few uh, women uh, training and let alone one of the few at that time when I started, I was in my late forties and, and now I'm 50, but I, I felt like, I was like, well, what am I doing here? You know, I'm, I'm, you know, and also, you know, amongst the few uh, people of color. Um, but, you know, as a woman, uh, I discovered how, 
self-conscious I was about the amount of space I would take up. And um, I found that I was constantly moving out of people's way. And I think particularly uh, my my coach, I think he noticed it and was like, Janet, you're good. Janet, you're good. Or if some (laughs) of the other people who were training um, during the, the open practice session, they may ask, particularly men, they would mm-hmm. ask, am I in your way? Oh, I'm sorry. I'll get out of your way. Was I in your way? And I I was I was floored because never <laughs> in my experience in academia, whether it be as a high school teacher or, or as a college professor, have I ever had a man ask if they were in my way or ever say, <laughs> you know, no, you don't have to move and said having them move around me. And yet that happened at the gym um, in, you know, a predominantly male space. And so I think there's a lot to be said about the, the respect level that, that is there um, and, and the, the uh, level of sportsmanship. And just there's, there's, I don't know if there's any unconscious training that has been done amongst the, the staff, but the respect when it comes to women, um, uh, practicing parkour most certainly is evident and and that's something also that I found very healing and I didn't I didn't even know I mean it's 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 kind of fascinating how you don't realize what kind of wounds you have until somebody you know says hey you're good or you know gives you you know extends to you some kind of warm gesture then you realize what kind of void was there to begin with it's quite fascinating. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Right now, you're probably just getting some folks in our community that are really intrigued now and want to explore parkour themselves, right? Or you probably have other folks also in our community that are uh, that you've just affirmed and say, yep, that's why I do parkour for that same very reason. <clears throat> you know, something, Janet, that I find fascinating is part of this work of really exploring joy and fulfillment in our lives to balance that work, right? That play to work ratio is also looking at how typically most people look for advancement in their career or vertical movement, climbing up the ladder, ascension, however you want to call it, to make more money so that they can uh, create more opportunities for fulfillment. And this is not to, like to just anyone that wants to advance in their career, but there's also some times when you make those moves that you have less time to make, um, you know, for that balance, that, that uh, you know, play-to-work ratio, or there's more time and stress that comes um, from that, Right. And I think what's interesting is when you are creating more room for play in your life, for of fulfillment, um, you're also making now these, these, what I envision as these lateral moves, kind of <clears throat> rather than looking at it as an upward mo- uh, move, how can you also kind of create all these other things with what you're currently doing to expand horizontally like as I imagine it like visually so 
I just, I just am just, you know, floored by also that realization of, of thinking about how can you expand your life rather than always having to really think about how can you rise vertically to make those moves and make that happen. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think that what you've touched upon is this is so very important because I mean, it's, it's, it's so common that many of us, you know, professionals will make decisions to, um, you will make professional decisions that we think will allow us the uh, resources to have more leisure. And then, like you said, we dis we discover that it is at the expense of our free time <laughs> and that it it we don't it doesn't yield the results that we expected. And um, one of the things that I like to encourage folks to do, especially like clients that that come up against this sort of thing, is really to take stock of uh, those decisions and if it is yielding the results that they expected. And, and if it's not, what kind of pivoting do they need to do um, in their professional life so that they can live the lifestyle that they want? Um, because, yeah, it, it's, it, it is a shame that, you know, as we may make attempts to advance in our careers in hopes of more money and greater access to, you know, services, activities, you know, whatever it may be, uh, uh, material goods, that we may not even have the opportunity to enjoy them because work is <laughs> exhausting us. Uh, right. Or consuming us. Or consuming us. Yeah. 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 So, so now, now we probably have folks that are following that are wondering whether this is a program that they should jump into, right? Whether um, this is something that they want to pursue to, to help where they're at. So who would be an ideal participant for the services that you offer? And, and for folks that have participated in the past and have shared their feedback, how did, what did they share? Like, how did they benefit from, um, Center uh, Joy Power. So, um, so Center Joy Power is for uh, professionals of color in any uh, field, and you know I've had um, folks who were um, doctors, um, lawyers, professors, um, theologians, um, a whole cross section of folks, folks within the um, uh, within uh, uh, the tech industry. Uh, a number of fields that have participated in the program. So that's that's one thing. Um, secondly, you know, a person of color who wants to reconnect with joy and um, and may have discovered that they have lost touch with the things that bring them joy. So uh, the program is ideal for that individual. I think it's also great for those who may feel just emotionally, physically, spiritual drained, spiritually drained. Um, it's good for uh, those leaders who may constantly be the one that everyone relies on. 
that they are so accustomed to having all the answers. They are accustomed to um, always being a source of support and um, and never taking a break. They again, they they are so used to being that rock, that pillar for everyone else, but they don't have that kind of support system. Um, Center Joy Power really helps to create that space for folks who are so used to being the leader with no one to rely on or no one to lean on. Instead, they can have a space where they can explore, um, not have all the answers and be okay with that, um, be clumsy, uh, while at the same time still you know, fully confident about the things that they most certainly know and are, are sure of, but be okay with not being so sure, not not being the expert in the room or not being expected to be the expert in the room. Um, it's very good for those who are nurturers that are so used to nurturing others are really good at it, um, but aren't so great at nurturing themselves. And um, yeah. kind of like what you spoke about earlier that, you know, sometimes even feel guilty when they nurture themselves or guilty when they experience joy. Um, it's also really good for those who's just constantly worrying and can't can't turn can't turn the worry off. So, awesome. yeah. And for past participants, how what did they share based on how they've benefited from Center Joy Power? I think the number one thing that many of uh, past participants have spoken about is how they've arrived at a place where they can really welcome uh, abundance or welcome joy and savor it. Uh, mm. They are also at a place where they can slow down. Uh, the slow down and savor kind of go hand in hand with many of the clients that I've spoken to once they've, they've finished the program that they are able to really notice far more um, at the end of the program notice in notice things in their environment but also notice things within their heart and spirit that they may not have um, paid attention to uh, before at the beginning of the program so I think something else that comes up amongst uh, past participants is the idea of permission that they're mm. finally okay with giving themselves permission to do the things that they love and that that permission didn't have to come from anybody else, that they ultimately were in control of giving themselves permission to let go of whatever was weighing down on them, whatever that was, whatever was causing them to shrink in certain spaces and uh, be okay with letting go and expanding and, and, um, allowing their spirit to shine no matter what space they were in. So those are just a handful of the things that, that clients have shared with me. Yeah, this is awesome. And and I also wanted to touch on, um, you know, as you're, you're talking that for the podcast and for anyone that ever listens to our episodes, you know, Philippine X and wellness may sometimes sound like we're marketing, but I, but I want to say it's really beyond that. We're not only dissecting the things that affect our wellness as a community, but we're also sharing resources and tools out there that exist. 
And I think that's what makes our podcast, you know, like a, a powerful thing for many, hopefully for generations to come is to just know that any type of thing that you're dealing with that affects your own wellness, there are people in our community that are providing these types of services to support to help you work through it. And it's not just always a one-size-fits-all. Uh, not everyone can effectively, um, you know, use talk therapy, even though that's also um, an important tool for to some that need to use that modality. But there's just so many different modalities out there that we just hope to expose you to all these different ways of working through that intergenerational trauma, those different things that challenge us as a community and challenge our own wellness. So Janet, I, I, you know, I really want to thank you as being a part of that process. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Yes. And so aside from being a wellness practitioner, you, we know that you're also an ethics studies professor at Napa Valley College and that you're an author. So what are some of the courses that you teach and some of the books that you've written? What content um, do you typically cover? So um, as far as the courses I teach at Napa Valley College, I teach uh, Ethnic Studies 1 and 2. And so these are basically survey and ethnic studies courses. Uh, I also teach Filipino American Studies, um, African American Studies, and a new course um, called Critical Mixed Race Studies. And that started uh, last year and we're about to have our second time offering it um, uh, next month. And so, yeah, those are some of the courses that I've, I've been teaching. Um, I've been teaching at Napa Valley College now for, I think I'm, I think I'm in my 18th year um, there. And uh, before that, I was a high school teacher. Um, I taught at Salesian High School. And um, that was where I taught social justice, history of Christianity, and algebra, um, and spoken word, and a few other things. Um, and that, that was actually when I first began to offer an elective in ethnic studies. Awesome. What are some of the books that you've uh, written or that you author as well? Uh, my first book uh, is called Crushing Soft Rubies. This is my memoir. And uh, this year I'm actually ce celebrating the 20th anniversary of that memoir. So I'm very happy and excited about that. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. And uh, the second one is Midnight Peaches, Two O'Clock Patience. This is a collection of essays, short stories, and poems on womanhood and the spirit. Uh, the third one is an ebook um, called Male Strippers as Healers and their MC as Griot, uh, Why Magic Mike XXL is Deeper Than You Think. And then the last one that came out in 2019 is called To Black Parents Visiting Earth, Raising Black Children in the 21st Century. Great. So if any of you want to read more of Janet's work, these are the several books out there for you to access more, you know, of like what she can share with the community. Now, we're kind of reaching the end of the episode. And one thing that we typically like to ask our guests is what their own wellness routines and self-care practices consist of. You mentioned in the episode earlier that you like to do parkour as one of your things that bring you joy. So for your own wellness and self-care outside of offering your program through Center Joy Power, writing and teaching, 
What what are other um, things that you dabble in? Um, I love to swim. I've probably been swimming longer than any of the other things that I'm doing right now. So I, I love to swim. Um, let's see. I love long walks, uh, especially any any anywhere near a body of water. I love taking a, a long walk. I love beaches. I love walking along the shore. Um, I am a big fan of, of pedicures and, and foot massages. And uh, yeah, those are just a handful of the things I do for, for self-care. Um, I also, uh, this is something, this is a practice maybe I started a couple of years ago. Uh, at bedtime, I will keep um, this, I have this basket of affirmation stones and I keep it near the bed. And at bedtime, I will select a stone. I'll close my eyes, select a stone, and then um, just meditate on that stone. So on each of uh, the stones, there is a particular uh, word that is carved into it, whether it's love or peace or courage or whatever it may be. And so as I select that stone and, and um, sit, at my bedside, I just kind of allow the images, words, sensations, whatever it is that it may be to just bubble up on its own as I hold that word in my in my consciousness. And what I find is that it, it, it helps me to fall asleep. And then mm. as I wake up, the word is still on my mind and I find that I'm able to carry that word with me throughout the rest of the day. And so that has been um, another part of my my uh, self-care routine. And, you know, I, in all honesty, it's not something that I do each and every single night. I probably should, um, but it, it is something that I do often enough throughout the week, um, anywhere from three to five times um, in the week. And it makes such a difference just in terms of my mood and uh, my ability to to get through the day with a more uh, positive outlook throughout the day. Thank you for sharing the different things that you do for your own self-care and wellness practice. I think it's important and the biggest takeaway is that from this question is that the guests that we have on they also have their own practice, right? They practice what they preach. And um, it's just good to like come up with just different ways um, to present to our community how you can incorporate um, self-care and wellness into your life. And hopefully, based on what our guests share on the podcast, you can find one that aligns with what brings you joy and fulfillment. Now, as we begin to close, how can our community find you if they have additional questions or would like to sign up for one of for your program, Janet? Um, so folks can find me um, at uh, JanetStickman.com. That's Janet, S-T-I-C-K-M-O-N.com. Uh, and on my website, you'll find out uh, all of my information about how to gain access to Center Joy Power Program, You'll find information about uh, my books, but also um, some free resources as well, different articles that I've written, uh, as well as um, different uh, meditations that have been posted there. So um, there's also a contact page if folks want to get um, in contact with me through the website. 
they can um, access that page um, on uh, on that website. They can also find me on Instagram, uh, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Janet Stickman. Again, that's at Janet and then S-T-I-C-K-M-O-N. And that's all across the board. And lastly, if anyone wants to shoot me a message, they can either DM me on Instagram or email me at hello at JanetStickman.com. All right. Thank you, Janet, for talking to our community about healing racial battle fatigue. We thank you for sharing your services with us, not just to equip our community with strategies to address um, their experiences of racism, but also colorism, microaggressions, but to overall just fill their life with more joy. We look forward to witnessing your journey unfold and supporting your work in the process. Thank you so much, Cheryl, for having me. It's an honor. It's an honor for us. And to our community, for our next episode, we'll be talking to Roque Bukton about ability advocacy. This episode will air on Wellness Wednesday, March 13. As we close, we'd like to acknowledge once again our guest speaker, Janet Stickman, our graphic designer and beat maker for our opening and closing track, Richie, Freddie Joachim for consent to use the, the first part of your instrumental track, Hear It From You, that you heard during our break, our advisors, Allison de la Cruz, Rian de los Reyes, and Safo Theologo, our community partners, this Filipino American Life, SoCal Filipinos, and Trek Table, and really all of our community members for your shares and support. As always, we'll share more about our guest speakers' offerings on our Instagram stories and highlights for permanent access with any of their upcoming events. Be sure to follow us at Philippine X and Wellness on Instagram, Threads, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Philippine X, the letter N, well, followed by the letters N and S. Don't forget to continue to hit like and subscribe on our Philippine X and Wellness YouTube channel. Thank you for always believing in us. Be well, everyone. Continue to take care of yourselves and each other. Thank you and salamat, Cheryl. Salamat, Gid.